Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, hey guys, good morning. My name is uh, Jake. I'm the executive pastor here at Mercy, and it is my joy to be with you this morning. Um, Before we get into God's word, I'd love to just go to the Lord and ask him to use me and to work in this room. God, just as we have sung, we turn our eyes to you. We look into your beautiful face. Lord, I turn my eyes to you. I ask that this time would be to your glory. That you would use the words that I speak, fumbled or not, to speak directly to the hearts of people in this room that they would hear your voice through your word, through my voice. Lord, for your glory, it is an honor to be here. And I love you and I'm so excited about this word that you have for us. So use me, use this time, make your name famous. In your name we pray these things, dedicating this time to you, amen. Amen. All right, well, some of you might not know this, but right now we are in the thick of the NBA Finals. Boston and Golden State are tied two to two. The first team to win four games goes home the national champion. While I don't really follow the NBA Finals a lot anymore, I love this time of the year because it's, it reminds me of a nostalgic memory from my childhood of watching the 96 and 97 Chicago Bulls compete for the championship trophy. It's, it's such a great memory of my family and getting together and watching some of history's greatest basketball. As you might be able to tell, I'm a bit tall. Actually, the camera tripod in the back has three settings, Pastor Richard, Pastor Spence, and Jake. All kidding aside, I come from a family with tall boys. My dad stands at 6'1", and he's the shortest among us. Growing up, basketball was our family sport. Many of my childhood and adolescent memories are spent remembering, celebrating my older brother beating the high school record and losing my voice cheering for him, or when it was my time to play, practicing before school as an eighth grader, trying to figure out if I could dunk before my brother did. For the record, I did. (laughs) Well, whether you like basketball or not, something I think we can all appreciate about basketball, and really most sports for that matter, is that there's different styles of playing. Whether it's the team or the player style, There's different ways to achieve victory. Now, if you know a lot about basketball, you know that even different regions of the United States have different styles of play. Being from the great state of Illinois, myself, nestled right in the middle of the Midwest, I can assure you that just as there's nothing like high school Texas football, there's nothing like Midwest high school basketball. Bottom line, there are many styles to playing basketball, whether you drive the lane and slam dunk or you pass the ball around the perimeter and shoot a three-pointer. You can win with any approach. At the end of the game, the team with the most points wins. It's pretty simple. The specific style doesn't determine the victory. There's no right style. 
except Midwest, of course. But not everything is like this. Sometimes style matters most. Take writing, for example. I'm old-fashioned, and I love to write handwritten notes. I like getting them, and I love giving them. But I can assure you that when I'm drafting an email to the members of Mercy about the bylaws changes coming, I write in a different style than when I'm writing my nine-year-old Bailey a Valentine's Day card. Any good author takes into the account the appropriate style of writing based on the work that they're producing. Whether they're writing a song, a biography, a medical journal essay, a sci-fi novel, style matters. In today's passage, we're picking back up in Philippians chapter 2. We're tuning in to Paul's letter to the church in the city of Philippi, written from a Roman prison. We're going to zoom in on Paul's exhortation to the church regarding unity. Now, last week, we learned from Pastor Spence that Paul's calling the people to unity as a means of living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. We learned how the words in chapter one of standing firm in one accord or contending together were military terms for a Roman phalanx where shields and spears united together in attack in battle. Well, in today's passage, Paul's going to continue to harp on the importance of unity But instead of talking about unity in battle against outside forces, he's going to talk about the unity that is needed for the battles emerging inside the church. For us, church, certainly, persecution, the deception of secularism, and the success of commonly worshipped idols like money, sex, power, or comfort will stand against the gospel moving forward. But like Paul's readers, there's another threat against the gospel advancing through our church, through Mercy Church. And the way to stand up against this threat is what we're going to dig into today. Here's what we're going to see in these 18 verses. When the church is unified the right way, her testimony will be vast, far-reaching, and effective. We're going to see that the only way we can really shine in a dark world is if we become like Jesus. We're going to see that we have to be like Jesus to shine like Jesus. As we hone in again on Paul's call to unity, We're going to look specifically at humility as a means to this unity. But unlike basketball, where style doesn't necessarily matter for victory, style will matter most in this pursuit. We're going to go through these 18 verses, and I hope to show you that Jesus-style humility is the only way to achieve true unity in the church. And this true unity is the only way to achieve effective testimony outside the church. There's going to be several moves in our text today. First, we're going to see that Paul lays a foundation for unity. Then he's going to appeal to the church to be unified. Then he's going to give an example of what this unity looks like. And then he's going to finish with a picture of the effect that this unity on the world, that this unity can have on the world around us. So let's get into the text. As Pastor Spence always asks, are you ready? Not bad, not bad. All right. Chapter 2, verse 1, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. All right. So Paul starts off with some rhetorical questions. He's being a bit dramatic here. It's like he's saying, if you have benefited at all from following Jesus, did you catch that? His questions... Do you have any encouragement from being saved? Is there any consolation from being loved? Do you have any fellowship with the Spirit? 
Do you have any affection and mercy towards others? The resounding rhetorical answer to these questions is yes. Of course they did. Now remember, Paul had a special affection for the Philippian church. And vice versa, they also loved Paul. So after Paul asks these questions, he appeals to this mutual love that they share and asks them and tells them to make his joy complete by being unified. It's like he's saying, have you received any benefit from following Jesus? Yes, you say? Well, then make me happy and get along. Be unified in the same love, the same spirit, the same purpose. Now, there's a ton in even just these first two verses, but instead of Paul just saying, be unified, like any good shepherd, he's going to unpack for them how. How can they find this unity? Before we get into that, though, I want to draw your attention to something that's foundational to understanding this passage. True unity only comes from being in Christ. Did you catch the basis for his whole appeal in verse 1? If then there is any encouragement in Christ. Paul is writing to believers, people who have given their life to Jesus. He's calling them to unity with each other based on the reality that they have unity with Christ. The basis for getting along or being unified in love, in spirit and purpose is being in Christ, right before God. Now, there are all kinds of failing attempts to create unity in our world. The reason I call them failing is because they're typically sectarian in nature. In God's kingdom, though, uniformity isn't unity. Whether it's a sports team, a Facebook group, a co-op farm, a political party, a private school, a law reform, a gender identity, or any other number of things that we chase after to find unity in community, the only lasting unity that's actually worth chasing comes from being in Christ. This is the kind of unity that provides a simultaneous open invitation to outsiders while actively caring for the needs of the people inside. Being in Christ is the only way we will really experience unity at Mercy Church. And the good news is that Jesus made a way in. Maybe you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. Well, I'm here to tell you, friend, he is inviting you into unity with him today. Don't wait. You don't have to have it figured out. You don't have to be cleaned up. You don't even have to wait until the end of this sermon. You can accept his invitation in right now by just declaring Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. You'll have unity with Christ. I can think of nothing that would make this day more meaningful for me than for one lost sheep to come home. Stop waiting. God wants you. He wants you son. He wants you daughter. He wants you today. So would you come? Now, church family, here's the bottom line. We are never going to have the unity that we desire or the unity that we need if we're not in Christ, remaining in Christ, looking to Christ, being like Christ. And the cost is too high for us to not fight hard for this unity. So let's pick back up in verse 3 and keep, keep going. Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. 
Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. What a glorious passage of scripture. We're actually going to spend most of our time today camping out right here. And here's why. Paul's writing a letter to a church of his friends. But get this. He's intending for this letter to be read aloud. He planned each word, each sentence, the structure, the flow of thought. Every single detail matters. And in our passage today, something significant happens. Paul changes genres mid-thought. In verse 5, depending on what translation of the Bible you have and how it's printed on your page, you might be able to see that the format changes, obviously, from discourse to poetry. And the shift is significant. It would have caused his listeners and readers to pay attention, and it should cause the same in us. Paul's using a literary technique to enhance and focus his readers and listeners. Here's what's happening. A quick recap. Paul is appealing to the church to be unified. He then tells them how. Humility. Humility is the way to unity. But he doubles down on humility. He spends time there. He gives an example. Now I'd like to invite you to use your imagination with me for just a minute. To be clear, I am guessing here. But I can't help but wonder if Paul thought to himself when he was penning this letter, you know, I'm asking these guys to get along, to be unified, and I've given them some very specific things to do. Things like do nothing out of selfish ambition or in humility consider others better than myself. Look to others' interests, not just your own. But I'm just not sure that this is enough. I mean, I, I keep seeing people in churches everywhere fighting over the smallest things. It's like they don't get it. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give them a bit of a sermon illustration. Maybe then they'll understand. I'm going to drop in a hymn about Jesus. That'll get my point across. Now, that's a little speculative, I know, but I'm not sure that it's that far off from what might have been going on in Paul's head when he wrote this letter. Sometimes as people, we need more than just a list of here's what to do or here's what not to do. And Paul's already given that in verse 3 and 4. Sometimes the most powerful way to illustrate a call to action is to show an example of this action being lived out. So that's what he does. He inserts verses 5 through 11, which is commonly known as the Christ hymn, this poem in the middle of his letter. And much like many hymns that some of us grew up singing, this hymn is beautifully written and poetically sophisticated. Paul is saying, be united through humility, but he doesn't just stop there. He's also saying that you need the right style of humility, not the humility that you're used to faking, but the kind of humility that you can start imitating. I'm talking about Jesus-style humility. Paul's going to say, adopt the same attitude or mindset of Jesus. 
This is the only how when it comes to unity and achieving it in our church. This is the only right style of unity. This is the only way we'll achieve victory in this battle. A lasting humility that leads to true and deep unity. We're going to call it Jesus-style humility. So what is Jesus-style humility? How do we apply this lesson that Paul's teaching here? Great question. I'm glad that you asked. I see four things here in this section that I think can help us to understand and hopefully begin to apply Paul's point to our own lives. We're going to call these the four characteristics of Jesus-style humility. First, Jesus-style humility lays aside privilege. Look with me at verse 6. This is talking about Jesus. Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. This passage is saying that Jesus is God. He had equality with God. He's not a less than version of God. He's fully God. But he didn't grasp or exploit or use this at, to his own advantage by asserting his power and his position. He could have, but he didn't. In the same way, Paul calls his readers to be selfless. Look again at verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. The application of this is wild. Paul says to do nothing out of selfish ambition. Nothing. Let's take inventory for just a moment. We're almost halfway through the year. Think about the last six months of your life. Have you done anything in, let's say, your work, your family, and this church body out of selfish ambition? Anything. Have you tried to get ahead at somebody else's expense? Have you put someone down to make yourself look better? Have you gossiped? Much of our economic system is built on the premise that getting ahead is inherently good. The idea that striving to grow our business or our resume or our long-term wealth is good for our economy can lead to an ignorance of the ramifications that always striving for more can have both on our lives and on others. We can trample over people in the name of capitalism and advancement thinking if we're not careful that they deserve it because they're not working as hard as us. Now, I'm not saying that all ambition is bad, but selfish ambition is bad. And I bet more of our ambition than we would like to admit is selfish. Maybe you're pretty selfless. Maybe you're great. What about vanity? What about conceit? Most people would look down on selfish ambition. But if we're honest, conceit, it's just easier to hide. When Paul says, do nothing out of conceit, he's getting at the core motivation level behind our actions. Have you done anything in the last six months with the motivation of impressing somebody else? What if you looked over just the last three months of your Instagram post and asked yourself, was any of this posted to make myself look better? Or maybe your feed isn't full of posts because you've figured out that it's easier to get away with judging other people's motivations and considering them fickle because they have to post their highlight reel to feel some sense of gratification in life. You're not like them. You'd rather hide your pride beneath the surface as you scroll, judge, scroll, judge, scroll, judge, repeat. Vain conceit. 
Jesus-style humility has no room for selfish ambition or vain conceit. None at all. We're desperate. Let's continue. Look with me at verse 7. Instead, he, talking about Jesus, emptied himself by assuming the, the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. So the second characteristic we see is that Jesus-style humility lowers oneself. Jesus emptied himself of his God privileges and put on the form of a servant. The actual word that Paul uses is better translated slave. Perfect creator taking on the form and role of the created. From God to slave. There are beautiful implications to God coming in the form of human flesh. Fully God, fully man. It's called the incarnation and we celebrate it every year at Christmas time. It's incredible. But this passage isn't unpacking the whole story of the God-man. Instead, it's highlighting the humility and in many senses, the loss that Jesus took on when he became a human. In the same way, Paul calls us in verse 3 to, in humility, consider others as more important than ourselves. And not just to look out for our own interests, but to look out for the interests of others. There was this study done in 2018 by a medical group about Americans' self-perception of their own intelligence when compared to others. Unsurprisingly, 65% of Americans think that they're smarter than the average person. In other words, when it comes to intelligence, most people think they're better. And equally as unsurprising, men were even more likely to think of themselves as more intelligent than the average person than a woman was. Once again, proving that women are more self-aware than men. <laughs> but here's the thing about this study that was most fascinating to me. The medical group suggested that the, quote, tendency to overrate one's cognitive abilities may be a stable feature of human psychology. Now, I'm not that smart, but it's pretty interesting that this particular medical group seems to believe that there's a psychological bent to think of oneself as better than others. So here's my point. Whether we're psychologically hardwired to think of ourselves as higher than others or we're just sinful, and that's what people are discovering through medical findings, data, analytics, we're in trouble, right? We are in need of Jesus. What if we looked at our participation in church with the framework of considering others better than ourselves? What would happen to our serve teams? What would happen to our community groups? We are prone and wired to look out for our own interests. We don't want to serve in Mercy Kids because we're too tired, too busy, or around kids all week long. We don't want to commit to a community group unless it fits our exact schedule, our location preferences, and everyone in the group is just like us. Maybe we are in group and we do serve in church, but when group discussion comes around, we fill the time with our stories and our questions. Instead of thinking, what opportunity could this create for somebody else in this room? We'd rather not socialize on a Sunday morning with anyone since it doesn't fit our Myers-Briggs introvert pattern. Or we come to church and we just talk with the people that we already know. What if someone sitting next to you in this room today is struggling to believe that they're important? They don't know anyone and they came here looking for love. And we're too selfish to see them. What would a simple, hi, I'm Jake. What's your name? Potentially unlock in this person's life. 
Jesus-style humility has no room for thinking of ourselves as more important or looking to our own interests only. None at all. We are desperate. Let's continue with verse 7 and 8. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. The third characteristic that we see is that Jesus-style humility is obedient. Jesus doubled down on his humility and was obedient. He wasn't just humble. Get this. He didn't just come and become a man. He obeyed as a man. And not just any kind of obedience, obedience to death. And not just any kind of death, death on a cross. So check it out. Jesus is so humble that he left heaven, took on the form of his creation, lived as a person, fully experiencing all the ailments of humanity. And then when his father told him to die a gruesome death, full of emotional, physical, and spiritual horror, he did it willingly. This is insane, church. Jesus is amazing. Look at this from John 10 where Jesus says, this is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I can take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down and I have the right to take it up. I have received this command from my Father. Just as Jesus was called to obey, we too are called to obey by being humble. We too have been called to take up our cross We too have been called to lay down our life. Humble obedience, even obedience to death, isn't optional in a life worthy of the gospel. Jesus-style humility has no room for disobedience. Even if the call is to death, we must obey. We're desperate. Do you get that? We're desperate. But let's look at 9 through 11. This is where the hymn turns from darkness to light. There is good news. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the last characteristic that we see of Jesus-style humility is that Jesus-style humility waits on God for exaltation. Because of Jesus' humility, obedience, and sacrifice, he's rewarded. Not just did Jesus defeat death by resurrecting from the dead, but even more, God highly exalted him. The same God that Jesus obeyed is now rewarding Jesus with the highest kind of reward. Jesus is exalted by God higher than any other, so that at his name, just his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. From the lowest of lows to the highest of highs, we see the full picture of Jesus' journey from high to low to lowest to highest. And just as we've been observing, we too have a promised reward for our humility. If we seek this reward and we grasp for it though, we've missed the whole point. It's God who rewards us. And the promises of being brought high as a reward for going low are vast in the scriptures. 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Luke 14, 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
Proverbs 22, 4, the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches, honor, and life. Matthew 20, 26, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Matthew eleven eleven, Jesus says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. This is the same John that said, referring to Jesus, he must become greater, I must become less. The humble exalted. The story of Joseph, who was betrayed by his brothers and humbly served God for years before he experienced freedom from imprisonment, and in the end said, what man intended for evil, God used for good. The humble exalted. Ruth, the Gentile widow who loyally stuck with a bitter old woman, believing in a God that wasn't hers, calling him her own, the humble exalted. The woman who anointed Jesus' feet with an expensive fragrance and was shamed by her onlookers, but honored Jesus, the humble exalted. The woman caught in adultery and brought forward to be stoned to death, her head lifted by Jesus as he said, I do not condemn you, the humble exalted. A brokenhearted, runt of the family, shepherd boy, broken by his dark sin, called a man after God's own heart the humble exalted, an aged and barren woman who laughs at the idea of becoming pregnant, eventually giving birth to a boy that she names laughter, the humble exalted, a virgin girl submitted to the father's will when he tells her that she has a baby in her only to give birth to the very Jesus that changed the world forever, the humble exalted. Church, there are countless examples throughout all of scripture of God exalting the humble. Jesus-style humility leads to exaltation. This is the good news for our desperation. Jesus' humility is enough. In Christ, we too will receive the glory for not just our humility, but for his. So brothers and sisters, we have to keep pursuing unity by adopting the same attitude as Jesus. The reward is coming We'll collectively look at Jesus' face and see it and praise it from on high because he is glorious and he is in us and he's changed us. So what does it look like if we've been changed and characterized by this Jesus humility? I think Paul gives us the answer in the text. So let's go back to verse 12, pick right back up. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's concluding this section of his letter similarly to how he started it, personal. He's appealing again. He's not changing his message or the call to unity. When he says, work out your own salvation or do everything without grumbling or complaining, he's still talking about unity. And he's still appealing to the friendship that he has with this church. What he's doing is he's showing the effect of this unity that he's calling them towards. So what is it? What is the effect of unity? Look with me at verse 15. So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. So here it is, church. Paul is saying, be unified. How, Paul? By being humble. Humble like Jesus. What difference is that going to make? 
you'll shine. Like the stars, you'll shine. You know, it's so easy for us, I think, to read scripture and to take out the humanity of the authors or the recipients. I know I do, all, I do this all the time when I'm reading the scripture. The Bible is God's word, but it's God's word written to us in various styles by various authors to various audiences at various times. And we can miss the voice of God when we miss the voice of the author. Paul was in prison when he wrote this, not knowing if he was going to make it out. This church in the city of Philippi that he's writing to was started by Paul in prison singing hymns to Jesus. Now here he is again in prison writing hymns about Jesus. Here he is again, different city, doing the same work and sharing from his heart. And he's basically saying, keep at it, church. Stay unified. Be humble. Hang in there. In the end, when it's over, I'll brag about you as the fruit of my life's work. So as we draw this sermon to a close and as the band comes forward, I want to do the same thing that Paul did. I want to talk to you as my friends. I love this church. I love you guys. I started this message off with the simple line that we have to be like Jesus to shine like Jesus. Our passage today ends with the effect of our unity. Why is it worth it? I mean, he said, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Count myself as less than others. Obey Christ even if he asks me to die. Why is this worth it, church? Why? Because of the effect. Our unity, which comes only from Jesus-style humility, will be what leads to our testimony. Here at Mercy, our vision is a bold vision. It's not some small goal. It's audacious. It's full of faith. Look at it. To see a gospel awakening in the city of Charlotte that is carried to the ends of the earth. Listen, church. We will not see this vision become a reality unless we are unified. And we won't be unified unless we are humble. And we won't be humble for very long if we don't look at Jesus, act like Jesus, have the mind and attitude of Jesus, and if we're not united with Christ. Everything is about him, everything. Everything we do, all of our songs today, our call to worship, first song, second song, third song, sermon, it's all about Jesus. We're gonna miss it, we're gonna blow it. What's the cost if we don't pursue unity? What is the cost? It's our kids, it's our siblings, our parents, our neighbors. Our coworkers, it's Charlotte, it's North Carolina, it's Cuba, it's Kenya, it's Ukraine, it's India, it's the unreached people group who don't even have access to the name that they will someday bow to. This is the cost of disunity. If we can't get over ourselves, if I can't get over myself, the cost is high, friends. It is so high. But if we can, we will shine like stars in the, in the dark world. 
we will shine like stars. We will shine like Jesus if we can be humble like Jesus. So as we continue in our service, let's worship this God. I'm talking like from the heart worship. Don't worry about the people around you. Who cares if you sound terrible and you're off key and you look silly? It's not about you. It's not about us. It's about him. Let's be humble. Let's be humble enough to come into this room and to look around and to see, to see others, to see their needs, their hurts, their sorrows. Not come in here focused on ourselves, focused on others. Let's be a church that has a community group ministry that's just full of people who are taking care of each other. Our needs are gonna get met, guys, if this is the kind of church we are. It's not about your needs not being important. It's about your needs being met by somebody else and you meeting somebody else's needs. This is what it means to be unified. This is what it means to be humble like Jesus. So let's worship this Jesus, only this Jesus.